All right, friends, a formal welcome to Torah Studies. Welcome, Dr. Maxi. Welcome, Mark. Welcome, Sandrine. Welcome, David and Yona. Welcome, Chazen Ben. Welcome, Adina Malka. Welcome, Susan, and hopefully soon, Richard. Welcome, Donna. Welcome, David. Welcome, Olia. Welcome, Paul. Welcome, Donna and Fred. Welcome, Ray. Welcome, Steve. Welcome, Mike and Sarah. And last but of course not least, welcome, Mom. It is great to have you here. Um, and all of you, it is great to have you here for Torah Studies. And it's great to have a connection because for a while I'm watching this thing go spinning round and round and no connection. So tonight the goal is to try to connect internet, well, all puns intended, the, the internet challenges with the theme of tonight's class. We'll see if we can pull it off. Maybe, maybe not. All right, so tonight we have a wonderful class in store for you, and there's a lot to speak about. But first, Riva just gave me the indication that she is looking for some seltzer. So, there we go. You got it. There we go. Let's get Riva in here. All right, fine. Let's, uh, let's jump in. So today's Torah portion, this week's Torah portion is called Shlach. And Shlach means send. Why is it called Shlach? Why is it called send? Because in this week's parsha, in this week's Torah portion, we read about the, well, it's a very, I'm just muting everybody for a clean background. You can unmute it at any time. Uh, it, we read about the tragic and very sad story of the Miraglim, the spies that were sent, Shlach, that were sent by Moses to check out the land of Israel. So they are a few days' journey from Israel, the Jewish people are. This is after the Exodus and after the revelation at Sinai and they received the Ten Commandments and they got the tablets and they broke the tablets and they got a second set of tablets and they built the Mishkan, the tabernacle, and all is well. And then they start marching toward Israel and they're getting closer. And the people say to Moses, Moses, we're, uh, we're looking for some intel. We would feel more reassured if you uh, found out what's going on on the other side of the border. We're supposed to conquer this land, the land of Canaan, and transform into the land of Israel. Uh, what are we up against? So Moses sends 12 scouts, 12 representatives, one from each tribe, to scout out the land, check it out, and report back. So we have a lot to talk about in today's class. The ultimate theme is going to be when to put ourselves out there for someone else and how we take responsibility for others. But until we get there, we're going to have a beautiful study journey. So again, let's get back to our theme. The Jews are at the cusp of the land of Israel. They request from Moses that spies be sent, or at least representatives be sent, to check out the land. Moses says yes. He thumbs up the, um, the, the concept, and this is what happens. I'm going to share my screen with you, and let's read this text inside together. Oh, let's make this a little bit bigger so we don't have to strain our eyes. Okay, text 1A. Um, Dr. Maxi, if you will, please read text 1A. This is the book of Numbers, verses 1 through 3, the opening of our Torah portion. God spoke to Moses saying, Send out for yourself men who will scout the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the children of Israel. You shall send one man, each for his father's tribe. Each one shall be a chieftain in their midst. So Moshe sent them from the desert of Paran by the, woods, by the word of God. All of them were men of distinction. They were the heads of the children of Israel. So thank you. So far, so good. The mission is set. The people are the, the representatives are chosen. They're worthy individuals. Twelve worthy um, representatives. And like I said, all is good. Now, if you don't mind, Dr. Maxi, please read the next one, which is text one B. Oh, so before that, so they get their marching orders, and they're told, "Here's a checklist of questions to answer," and they go out into the land of Israel or the land of Canaan or Canaan. And here's what happens upon their return. All right, take it away, please. 
they returned from scouting the land at the end of 40 days. They went and they came to Moshe and Aaron and all the congregation of the children of Israel in the desert of Paran to Kadesh. They brought them back a report as well as to the entire congregation and they showed them the fruit of the land. They told him and said, we came to the land to which you sent us and it is flowing with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who inhabit the land are mighty, and the cities are extremely huge and fortified. And there we saw even the offspring of the giants. And at this point, at this point, the, um, the seeds of fear are planted. But let's continue with the rest of the panicked report, please. The Amalekites dwell in the Southland, while the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountainous region. The Canaanites dwell on the coast and alongside the Jordan. Caleb silenced the people to hear from Moses, and he said, We can surely go up and take possession of it, for we can indeed overcome it. But the men who went up with him said, we are unable to go up against the people, for they are stronger than us. They spread an evil report about the land that they had scouted, telling the children of Israel, the land we pass through to explore is a land that consumes its inhabitants, and all the people we saw in it are men of stature. Thank you. So this is the report that comes back. And if we, it's a, it's a bit of a long report. So if we had to summarize, I'm just scrolling back a little bit. So we know that their scouting mission lasted 40 days, which is ultimately a significant number. Um, so they, they were there 40 days checking out the land. They come back. They call a press conference. They go to Moses, Aaron, and the entire people, which... You know, why would they go to everybody, but they should report back to the commander-in-chief. Nonetheless, they call the press conference, and they come back, and they say, yes, it's a beautiful land. It's flowing with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. They bring back the fruit. However, and you know, the however, that changes. It's beautiful, but, all right, but what? The people are giants. The cities are fortified. Our, our arch enemies uh, live there, the Amalekites, the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites, Canaanites, they're all powerful, they're all strong. Essentially, good luck trying to conquer that land. Caleb is one of the good guys. Caleb is one of the, one of the two of the 12 spies that remains faithful to the mission and to Moses and to God. And Caleb says, no, we can do it. And the men said dramatically, nope, there's no way. The 10 spies, 10 out of 12 said, there's no way we can do this. We cannot enter the land. We cannot conquer the land. We won't be successful. And they said an evil report. Look at that. Look at that last paragraph. That's very important. They spread an evil report about the land. In other words, they spread slander. They slander the land. And they said the land we pass through is the land that consumes its inhabitants. And all the people are men of stature. So that is considered to be slander or evil report, something negative. What we would call perhaps Lushan Hara, we're going to get back to that theme, very important theme, in a moment. Now, what was their slander? What form did their slander take? You know, if they were kind of offering, you know, just a report of what they saw, what's the, where's the slander? So let me, let me frame this a little bit. So one of the things that Moses told them to check out was the fruit of the land. And in fact, in the text that we just read, it says that they brought back from the fruit of the land. Well, here's the deal. There was apparently some really special fruit that was growing in the land of Israel at that time, right? And some of you may be familiar with this tradition that when they went to the land of Israel, these 12 scouts, spies, to the land of Israel, they saw these massive grapes, these massive clusters of grapes, they were so big. We might call these like novelty-sized grapes. These grapes were so big that it took eight of the 12 spies, eight of them, to carry one cluster of grapes. These are mega huge-sized grapes. Now, you're, you might be thinking, I've never seen such grapes. Yeah, but you know what? You and I didn't live back then either. So listen, this is what it says that the grapes were massive. Not only that, but there was also a massive fig and a massive pomegranate. 
that they took as well. Ten of the spies, the ten ones that uh, went rogue, right, carried between them eight carrying uh, a cluster of grapes, one a fig, and one a pomegranate to bring back. And what did they say when they came back? What did they say? Right, so you bring back these massive fruits. You could say one of two things. Check this out. This place is great. Or you can say, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Or you can say, this place is crazy. What kind, of, what kind of ridiculous place is this? What kind of weird, strange, bizarro place is this where you have all these weird um, fruits growing? This is crazy. This is not the place to be. Well, you might have guessed it, the spies chose the latter in which they disparaged the land of Israel. They turned a blessing into a, what they called to be a curse. They said, this land is terrible, it's horrible, look at this really big fruit. Okay, I want to share, and lest you're wondering where I got this from, let's just read Rashi. Rashi says this. Rashi explains what they said. Um, let's ask, let's see... Let us ask Adina Malka. All right, please read text 2A from Rashi. They carried it on a pole between two people. From the implication of they carried it on a pole, do I not know that it was carried by two? So what does between two tell us? The answer is with two poles, how was it done? Eight of them took a cluster of grapes. One took a fig and one took a pomegranate. Joshua and Caleb did not take anything for the intention of the others was to present a slanderous report. Namely, just as its fruit is strange, so its people are strange. You see that? Look what Rashi says right there at the end. What was their intention? When they brought back these really oversized fruits, the grapes, the fig, the pomegranate, it wasn't to show off how wonderful it is in Israel. It was to say, wow, this stuff is strange. The people are strange. We don't want anything to do with this place. Let's not go in. That was their intention. And that's why Caleb and Joshua, Joshua and Caleb, the only two spies that remained true to the mission and believed in God and Moses and the Jewish people and the ability to conquer the land, that's why they didn't partake and bring back the fruit. Even though Moses says, check on the fruit, they said, we're not bringing back the fruit because the fruit's going to be used as a weapon to disparage the land. Does that make sense? So what we see here is not an objective report. It's a slanderous report. It's taking a blessing and, and framing it, spinning it, as something terrible, something bad. You know what, Adina Malka, if you don't mind, um, please read text to me, but, but before you do that, let me just quickly set this up. Um, if, I'm gonna, and I'm gonna scroll back for a moment. The, um, at the end of text 1b, we read that when the spies came back, at least the 10 of the 12 said, the land we passed through to explore is a land that consumes its inhabitants. Look at that line. It's a land that consumes its inhabitants. What does that mean? Rashi is about to explain, it means that they said that the land kills its people. And people are dying left and right. Well, let's see why that was indeed the case. Take a look at Rashi, Adina Malka. Please read this one. Consumes its inhabitants. Wherever we passed, we found them burning dead. The Holy One, blessed is he, intended this for good to keep them occupied with their mourning so they should not take notice of them, the spies. You see that? So God caused it that the locals should have, unfortunately, lots of funerals so that they wouldn't notice these 12 Jewish-looking tourists. I can just imagine these, these, uh, these fellows going incognito. It's like, yeah, they got the big camera, Right, the big tourist camera, little fanny pack action, maybe some sort of sun hat going on, and like, you know, uh, or like a baseball cap just so no one sees the old kippah. Sure, right, these 10, 12 guys won't stick out at all. So anyway, so God caused it that everyone else should be preoccupied, the locals, the natives should be preoccupied in, uh, unfortunately, in funerals, 
But meanwhile, instead of recognizing the blessing and saying, thank God, we were able to do our mission without getting caught or questioned or arrested or, you know, whatever. Instead of thanking God for that, they turned around and said, what a terrible place. People were dying left and right. That's what we call straight up Lushan Hara. It's looking at someone or something in the worst possible light and then talking about it. It's like, oh, you know what happened? Ooh, right? And it's, that's, it's not nice. It's not kosher. It's not, it's, it's not a Jewish thing to do. It's not a Torah ethical thing to do. So what's at the core of their sin? What did the spies do? After all, it would seem they didn't do anything. They just said the report, but that is enough. Because what they did was spread negative information, slanderous almost information, about the land of Israel. So, you know that phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but but names or words, whatever, will never hurt me. Maybe names. In other words, that words don't matter. Well, words do matter. We know in Judaism, words absolutely, yes, Motsi Shemra, exactly. Words absolutely matter, right? What, what we say matters, and the Torah says, be careful, watch what you say, right? Whether it's when taking a pledge, when making a pledge, right? When we, when we promise something, you know, we're supposed to fulfill a, a, an obligation. That's why if we, even in casual conversation, if we say, yeah, I'll meet you at, or I'll see you, or I'll, yeah, I'll do that for you, we should... Try to say belineder without an oath because otherwise it's a binding obligation. So our words matter. And when we use our words to harm, to hurt, to disparage, to, to, to create fear and, and so all sorts of negative emotions, that's a bad thing. And this is at the core of the sin of the spies. No, the spies didn't hurt anybody. The spies didn't lift their hands and hurt anybody. But what the spies did was they opened their mouths and they said something negative about something beautiful. They said something disparaging about a gift from Hashem. And that was their sin. This is the way it's, it's understood from a, 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 just a, a straightforward reading of the, of the text, of the Torah text. This is what you see from the commentaries, that their sin was Lashon Hara. Their sin was gossip, or even worse, or negative talk, even worse, slander, making up stories that aren't even true. So this was their... Their, their sin. Now, Rashi points out, and this is where we're going next, because we have so much to talk about, and, and I want you to halt cup here, which means follow, follow me through this journey. So Rashi explains something really powerful. He says there's a connection between the end of last week's Torah portion, Balotra, and the beginning of this week's Torah portion, Shlach. I'm going to say that again without the Hebrew terms. There's a connection, there's a juxtaposition or a significance in the juxtaposition between the end of last week's portion and our story of the spies that opens up this week's portion. Right? They're back to back. Right? So the last Torah portion ends with a story and this one begins with the spies, the Torah connect. Well, what's the story that, that the last Torah portion ended with? I'm glad you asked. It was the story of Miriam when she spoke negatively about her brother Moses to her other brother Aaron. And so listen to this. Listen to what Rashi says. Rashi says the two themes are connected. Miriam's story of speaking ill of her brother and the spy's story of speaking ill of the land of Israel, right? Those two are thematically connected, which is why they're, they're, they're back to back. They're against, they're, they're juxtaposed to each other. Let me share my screen and let's read this Rashi inside. This is going to be text number three. And let's ask Ray. Ray, if you don't mind, please read text number three. Don't forget to unmute. I just gave you the cue. Thank you. Set for yourself then. Why is the section dealing with the spies juxtaposed with the section dealing with Miriam because she was punished over matters of slander. 
for speaking against her brother. And these wicked people witnessed, but did not learn their lesson. So Rashi says, thank you, Rashi says, look, Miriam spoke negatively about her brother and got punished. Right, she was quarantined for seven days out of the camp, etc. And and the, the the spies should have noticed and taken note and paid heed to the lesson, which is don't speak ill of others and other things. And they should not have spoken ill of the land of Israel. But they didn't learn their lesson. But that's why they are juxtaposed, right? Again, because she was punished over matters of slander, and these people witnessed it but did not learn their lesson. They should have learned their lesson from Miriam. Okay, does that make sense? Yes, the juxtaposition makes sense. Good. Lashon Hara, followed by Lashon Hara, two, two stories together. I, I have a problem with this. It's not only my problem. I'll, the Rebbe asked this question. What's the problem? Hold on, one second. Are we drawing a, a, um, a comparison between Miriam's good intentioned, she was concerned about her brother and her, her, her sister-in-law and about, you know what she was talking, uh, without getting into the details, Miriam was speaking about her brother and his marriage and she was concerned about the family, about the mishpacha. Uh, you know what, let, let's jump into it because I, I need to make this question a question. Miriam was speaking with Aaron. There were three siblings. Miriam was the oldest Aaron was the second child, and Moses, Moshe, was the youngest, the baby of the family. Miriam says to Aaron, I heard that Moses, okay, I'm just going to use Hebrew names. Miriam says to Aaron, I heard that Moshe has separated from his wife, or at least is not intimate with his wife. What's going on? Um, and, and I heard it's because he's a prophet, and he has to speak with God, and so he has to be in a state of purity and ready at all times. But we're prophets, and we still are, are connected, and we're still together with our spouses. So what's going on? And she was, she was kind of raising concern about her brother, but not to him, to the other brother. So they were speaking about, she was speaking to Aaron about Moses, hence they got called in by God, and God says, yeah, it's it, you're quarantined, and, and she got Sarat, the... Uh, the, um, the, 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 the consequence for speaking ill in those times, of someone else in those times. So the question is like this. So why did Miriam speak ill of, of why, why was she talking about Moses, Moshe? So let me give you background. So let me give you a little context to understand this. What do we know about Miriam? As a young girl, what do we know about Miriam? I'll tell you what we know about Miriam. That her father and Aaron's father, right, their parents, um, namely Amram and Yocheved, that's the, their parents, Amram had separated from his wife. Her father and her mother, Miriam's father and mother, had separated after Aaron's birth. Why? Because Pharaoh said that there's a decree that all boys that are born should be thrown into the Nile or, or killed, right? So Amram says, what? I'm going to be with my wife and have more kids that will be killed? That's it. Separate. And then what happens? All the couples, the Jewish families... The husbands and wives separated. No more, no more kids. Miriam goes to her father. Yeah? Miriam goes to her father and she says, you're worse than Pharaoh. Why? Because Pharaoh only decreed that the boys shouldn't live. But by separating from mom, you're decreeing that the boys and the girls shouldn't exist. Are you with me on this? This is what she tells her father. And her father says... You're right. And he gets back with his wife, and everyone gets back with their wives. And because of that, Moses is born. I'm saying this because as a young girl, as a, young, as a six-year-old girl, right? Miriam was concerned with what? Help me out here. What was she concerned about? Creation. Well, she was concerned there would be no Jewish people because... Good, good. And she was concerned immediately about husbands and wives being together. Right? That was her concern. And so now you can imagine, all these years later, and she sees her own brother who's separating from... who's not together with his wife. And this is what she was all about. And not only that, 
you know, different miracles in the desert happened because of the three siblings. Do you know what, what, what miracle happened for the Jewish people in honor of Miriam? Help me out here. What, what the, yeah? They stayed and they waited well, until she was no longer that, They waited for her, but. but no longer sick. Yes, but what miracle happened? The well. The Be'erish of Miriam, the well of Miriam. And what happened with the well? You know what happened in the well? The well was not only a place to drink, but there were other streams that were being used for mikvah. Miriam was all about husbands and wives together. It was all about families together. And now you have Moshe who's not together with his wife. And that bothered her. And that's why she spoke about, about Aaron. So you're telling me... There's a caveat. Hold oh, one second. One second. I'm right in the middle. One second. So you're telling me... So you're telling me that there's a connection. Rashi, you're telling me there's a connection between Moses, sorry, Miriam speaking out of concern, out of deep embedded concern for her brother and her sister-in-law and about the value of family and the value of, of mishpacha. You're telling me that that's equivalent to the spies and their evil machinations, their evil plot to, 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 to derail the plan of the promised land. You're telling me that they're equivalent? Again, Rashi says, why are these two juxtaposed? Yeah, to tell you that Miriam slandered, Miriam spoke ill of her brother, and these people should have known better, but they still spoke, spoke ill of the land of Israel. Are you serious? You're comparing these two? You're telling me that they're, they're juxtaposed because like she spoke ill, they spoke ill? You don't see any difference? The Rebbe asked the question, this question. The Torah should have put these two stories far apart so that no one would ever think that Miriam spoke maliciously, that Miriam spoke with ill intent about her brother. She spoke with love. She spoke with concern. She spoke with holy intentions. And the spies? Come on. You're, they should not be juxtaposed. They should be put in opposite sides of the Torah. Let's read this question. Let's read this question together in the text. Chazan Ben, one second, one second, one second. Let's read this text. Text number four from the Rebbe. I'm going to read this. When we read these two passages, one after the other, the story of Miriam and the story of the spies, both of which are about Lashon Hara, one could possibly make the terrible mistake of thinking that Miriam and the spies can be placed in the same category, God forbid, or at least that the two stories are similar to one another. Seemingly, and that would be a mistake, that would be a catastrophic mistake, seemingly to avoid such a misunderstanding and to make clear that the spies were not on Miriam's spiritual level at all, the Torah ought to have placed these two stories apart from one another and place some other passage in between them. The Rebbe asks, why are they juxtaposed? Rashi says, oh, Lashon Hara, Lashon Hara, speaking ill, speaking ill. And the Rebbe says, are you kidding me? You're going to draw a parallel between these two? Miriam had the best of intentions. Miriam was at Sadekis, right? And these spies... The spies, at least the simple reading of the story, they had ill intentions. And they derailed the, 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 pr the process for 40 years of going to the land of Israel. And they decreed death upon a generation. And, 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 and there's an equivalency to Miriam. Are you kidding me? In fact, the question is even stronger. Why is the question stronger? Because we know in Judaism, not only, not only is it not nice to... Um, to throw someone under the bus, which it seems like we're doing with Miriam, by putting her next to the spy story. Not only that, but moreover, we know that we go to the furthest degree to make sure that we don't even somehow um, indicate, even indirectly, that someone that's innocent or someone that, it, that, that, that is not guilty of a certain crime seems to be guilty of a crime. Let me say that in straightforward language. We go to the furthest extreme to make sure that we don't cast a negative light on someone who, should, who that light should not be cast upon. This is why, for example, Halacha says, and this is brought down very interestingly in the text. I'm not gonna, I don't know if I want to read it inside, but I'll, I'll give you the, um, the summary of it. So there's a, 
in the times of the temple, times of the Beis Hamikdash, there were different um, charitable funds that were actually physically. I mean, this is before you know online banking, but they were the, the monies were actually held in physical baskets or boxes in a certain place in the temple. And the Talmud says that when those that would take from that to spend on whatever needed to be spent on for the, for the purpose of the temple, when they entered, the clothing that they were supposed to wear should not have hems or pockets so that no one would suspect them of acting imp- uh, with impropriety. In other words, one is supposed to go to the furthest degree to make sure that we don't cast someone in a negative light erroneously. I hope that makes sense. So basically, somebody is supposed to avoid even walking into that space with tzedakah money, with pockets, so that no one should suspect. Not that they shouldn't take. Of course they're not going to take. But that no one should suspect them of taking from what they shouldn't take from. And so you're telling me that, we're, that we, well, we want to make sure that the gabite stuck of the tzedakah collector, no one should look bad at the tzedakah collector, so you know, don't give anyone a reason to look bad. But Miriam, we don't care about. Miriam will put her together with the spies and let people figure out for themselves that they were different types of stories. Of course they were different types of stories. But the juxtaposition is getting us confused. The juxtaposition, the fact that the two stories are back-to-back, could allow us to think that somehow there's an equivalency between the two stories, and that does not seem right. That seems untenable. That seems just impossible for the Torah to do so. Does this question make sense? Yes. Ben. All right, so, so before we go into all of that, okay, and, and I'm just, I know the commentaries and all of that, but I'm looking at the text. And the text says, and the lesson is, which is so relevant to today, is that, that Miriam and Aaron spoke on the fact that Moses took a Shukai woman uh, for a wife. And the text says, for he took a Koshite woman. So they were being really, uh, uh, I think, for, for me, it's prejudice, okay? And the lesson, the big lesson here is... Cousin Ben, you're giving me a, 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 a drash, but it's a different angle. I'm with you. I hear you. But I, I hear you. I hear you. But Cousin Ben, Cousin Ben, there's Pshat. Pshat is Rashi. We got, we got to stick with Rashi for Pshat. Listen, I, I hear you. We, we don't have... I, I hear you, but, but I, I have to ask you to... Because you want to teach your lesson, but I, Ch- 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 Ben, everyone's here to hear this class. Please, we can have schmoozes. We can have schmoozes at, right after the class. We have we have 17 minutes left. I have to get through material. So here is here is we have plenty of time after the class to schmooze. But let's 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 stay let's stay focused there. So what we have here is a question, and the question is how could there be a juxtaposition? How can we have uh, even a even a sh- even a sh- uh, um, a shadow of a doubt that Miriam's case is similar to the spy's case. So listen to where we're going to go with this. We're going to go. We're going to pause and go in a completely different direction. Now, so take this this concept that we built and put it aside for a moment. We're going to get back to it. We have now a new discussion that's going to relate to it ultimately at the end. And what is this discussion? The discussion is about. When is it okay for someone to do something that is wrong to save someone else from doing something wrong? You understand the question? When is it or is it permissible for someone to do something that they shouldn't do with the intention that that's going to save someone else from doing something really wrong. I'll give you an example. And the example, I'm not going to give you a random example because we don't have time for random examples. I'm going to give you a very specific example that Halacha deals with, which we'll have in the sources in a moment. On Shabbos, we're not supposed to cook or bake, which means if you have an oven that's on, let's say there's an oven, you know, back in the day, you have fire burning in an oven. So to take a piece of dough that's, 
raw and put it in the oven is not, uh, we shouldn't do that on Shabbos. Why on Shabbat? Because it's baking on Shabbat. Okay. What if, oh, hold on, but let me add one more wrinkle to it. Um, back in the day, apparently, I, I've never seen this with my own eyes, but apparently back in the day, they didn't have shelves in the oven and they didn't have like pans to bake necessarily. They had this technique where they would actually take the dough and somehow stick it to the side of the oven or to the walls of the oven. It would bake, literally stuck to the sides, and then there would be a whole chachma, a whole craft in how to get the dough off the side without ruining it. It was a very complicated thing. So listen to this. The rabbis said, rabbinic legislation. We don't want you dealing with ovens on Shabbos, on Shabbat. We don't want you to... You know, it's a biblical law not to bake on Shabbat, not to cook on Shabbat, fine. But rabbinically, they said, even to take something off on Shabbat, even to use the special tool and to peel off the dough from the oven on Shabbat, rabbinically is forbidden. Now, why exactly did the rabbis forbid it? Again, we don't have time to cover this in tonight's class, but let me give you a scenario. Let's say, Reuven, our friend Reuven, right, uh... This, on Shabbos, there's an oven, it's, there's fire in the oven, he takes a piece of dough and he sticks it to the walls of the oven to bake it. I'm going to bake on Shabbat. And then, two minutes later, he starts feeling guilty. <laughs> and he says, "I, what am I doing? Am I really baking on Shabbat? I feel bad about this. You ready? Now the question is, is he allowed to take the dough off the oven, right? Because putting it on is baking, but taking it off is removing it on Shabbat, which is rabbinically forbidden. Are you with me on the question? So is he allowed to violate the rabbinic prohibition to save himself from a biblical prohibition? What do you think? Yeah, is he allowed to take off the dough before it bakes, violating the rabbinic commandment to save himself from a biblical commandment? What do you think? Yes or no? Mark says, yes, I'm with Mark. Yes, correct. It's, you go by scale or by degree. Look, baking on Shabbat is biblically prohibited. Better to violate the rabbinic prohibition than to violate the biblical prohibition. Fantastic. But now let me give you the complicated scenario or the more thought-provoking scenario. Imagine Reuven sticks the dough to the wall and he walks away. And Shimon, person number two, is witnessing this. And he says, oh my gosh, I don't want Ruvain to violate Shabbat by baking on Shabbat. So what will I do, says Shimon to himself? I will take off the dough and take it out of there before it bakes. Are you with me on this? Here's the question. Is Shimon... The second person, is he allowed to violate the rabbinic prohibition to save Ruvain from the biblical prohibition? So if it's the person themselves, we say, yes, violate the rabbinic instead of the biblical. But now it's not the same person. Now it's Ruvain put the dough in. Shimon wants to take it out, but Shimon would violate rabbinic prohibition, but he'd save Ruvain from a biblical issue. So what do you do? I'm glad you asked. I hope this question, I hope this case makes sense. Um, let's read this inside. I'm going to, we have a bunch of texts, so let me, let me, I'm going to do the reading from here on out. Text number five. This is from the Mishnah. I'm sorry, this is not text five. This is text number six from the Talmud. Rav Shela says, said that they permitted someone else to remove the bread to save the other guy from transgression. So Rav Shela says, in the case that I just gave you, yes, it is permitted for Shimon, person number two, to take the dough and violate Shabbat rabbinically to save his buddy Ruvain from a biblical prohibition. So yes, they did permit someone else to remove the bread to save the other guy from transgression. However, Rav Sheshet strongly objected to this. Rav Sheshet says, do we tell a person sin so that another will benefit? Since when are you supposed to sin for someone else's benefit? That makes no sense. What, I should sin for someone else? 
if they themselves are on the hook for something bigger, so let them get out of it with something smaller. But I should throw myself under the bus for someone else? No way. Rather, says Rav Sheshet, as Rabbi Barabaya said, if one stuck bread to the oven, the rabbis permitted him, but not someone else to remove it thus avoiding a more serious transgression that would incur the death penalty. In other words, it's only him, the sticker, who's allowed to remove it, but not someone else because, and this is the key phrase, do we tell a person, this is rhetorical, do we tell a person sin so that another will benefit? And the answer is no, you don't. Now the halacha is, so we have a dispute, a, a machloket, a, 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 a dispute in the Talmud. The halacha is like Rav Sheshet. The halacha is you do not tell someone that go sin to save someone else, you don't. Rather, let the bread bake and let Ruvain face the music, whatever that music is, right? He's on the hook. He did the crime. He's got he's to own up to it. I, Shimon, his, the other guy, can help him get out of it before it bakes, but he would do a sin in doing that. We don't tell someone else, you go sin to save someone else. We don't do that. This is case number one. Okay? I hope this makes sense. Case number two. Okay? Case number two is... Hold on. I got to tell this to you outside. Okay. Case number two pertains to tithing. It's called miser. It's called tithing. So what is the laws of tithing? Tithing of produce works as follows. If you had a farm... In the, ancient, in, in the land of Israel. So you are obligated to give a percentage of the produce that grows to the Levite, to the Levi. That was your obligation. And if you don't give the tithe, you can't enjoy the rest of the produce. All of the other produce is banned. It's not kosher to eat as long as the tithe is not given. I hope you're with me on this. So again, if you have land in Israel and you grow, I'm going to give you a simple example. As a non-farmer, this is the example that comes to mind. Let's say 100 stalks of wheat grow, whatever, right? 100 units are growing. You have to give 10%, the 10 stalks, in order for you're for, to be able to enjoy the other 90. If you don't give the 10, the other 90 are... I mean, they're not not kosher because of laws of kosher, but you can't eat them. Okay. What happens if, what happens if you buy produce from a farmer in Israel and you don't know if they did it or not? What happens if you buy, what happens if you buy produce from a farmer and you don't know? Did they take the miser? Did they take the tithe? Or did they not? Did they take the tithe or not? What do you do? Are you allowed to eat it? You buy a basket of apples from a farmer in Israel, right? But you didn't ask the farmer, did you tithe or not? You get home, you're like, oh, what should I, am I allowed to eat it or not? So the halach is like this. If it's just a, a regular farmer, you don't know who the farmer is, so then you have to separate a tenth of what you bought just in case. So if you bought 10 apples, take one out and hold it to give to the Kohen, to give to the Levi, and then you can enjoy it after you've separated the tithe from what you bought because you don't know if it was tithe. But if you bought your, if you know that the that the farmer of that field is a chaver, which means that they are a scholar and a trustworthy person, so you can assume that they did give the tithe, and then you can enjoy the full basket of apples, even though you didn't ask specifically did you tithe or not. You can assume that the tithe was given. So again, I'm going to give you the the, the the two scenarios one more time. If you buy it, if you buy the fruit, the produce from just an ordinary, so to speak, farmer, and you don't know if they did it or not, you have to be more cautious and take a tithe from what you bought just in case. But if you bought it from a scholar and a pious, trustworthy person with a good reputation, even if you didn't ask, you're still allowed to eat the whole thing because you can assume safely that they took the tithe. All of that is easy stuff. That's not what we're talking about tonight. I'm going to give you the more complicated case. The more complicated case is what happens if you bought it from this Chaver's farm, the trustworthy guy's farm. But he himself didn't pick the fruit and he himself 
didn't necessarily give the tithe. He had sent a worker of his into the field to gather the produce and then to bring it to the market to sell. And now the question is, I know the owner of the field is, is, a, is a righteous fellow, but the worker, how do we know what the worker is? What's the status of the worker? So here we go. Here we go. The, the halacha is, give me a second. The halacha is that you assume that the owner of the field did give the tithe even though the worker went. Why do you assume that? Because a, a pious, God-fearing person would not even allow a worker to erroneously pick fruit and sell it without the tithe being given. But the question is, he wasn't in the field. He sent, you have to give the tithe from what you're picking. You can't give the tithe from another field. How, if he sent the farmer, sorry, if, if the owner of the field sent a worker into the field to pick the fruits and to sell them, and he wasn't around, so how could he have given the tithe? What kind of tithe did he give if he wasn't there to give from what was picked? And the answer is, this is what the Talmud says. The answer is that he probably, that he, we assume that he gave a tithe from other produce. But the Talmud asks, you're not allowed to give tithe from other produce. You have to give it from that produce. Rabbinically, you're not allowed to give tithes from elsewhere. You can't give 10 apples from another crop for this crop. You can't give 10 green apples for red apples. What is this? Rabbinically, it's prohibited. Rabbinically, it's prohibited. Talmud says the following. Take a look. I hope I didn't lose you guys, but I, listen, there's a lot, these are complicated cases, and we're, we're, I set the halt cup, and so I still hope you're, halt, you're, you're halting cup. Here we go. Text 7 from Erevin. Rebbe reasoned. It is preferable, listen to this, for the chaver, for the God-fearing, pious uh, scholar, to commit a minor offense, which is separating ties in the wrong fashion from other crops, so that another person will not unwittingly commit a graver offense of eating untied produce. In other words, the chaver, who's sending his worker into the field, will preemptively tithe from another part, another crop, why? So that just in case the worker forgets, because he's not a chaver like he is, that the guy who purchased it will be safe because tithes were given from the overall field. And even though it wasn't that crop and you're supposed to do it from that specific yield because rabbinically that's how you do it, he's willing to commit a minor offense to save someone else from a graver offense. And here we see that what's the law? The law is that, yes, this is kosher. This is preferable. It is preferable to commit a minor offense to spare another one person from committing a graver offense. And if you've been paying attention, you'll realize that this is in direct contradiction with the halacha that we said before regarding the bread and the dough. Sorry, the dough in the oven on Shabbat. What we see here in Tosfot, on, on the Talmud points this out, we have a, what seems to be a contradiction. In one case, namely the case of the dough in the oven, yeah, in one case we say that it's not preferable to sin to save someone else. And in this case we're saying it is preferable to sin to save, to commit a minor offense, to, to spare someone from a more major offense. This is, go to Mendel, Mendel can help you, I can't help you right now. This is, this is, what the contradiction is. In one case, we're telling a person, don't commit a minor, a sin, a minor transgression to save someone else. They're, let them worry about it. But in this case, we do say that the person should tithe from elsewhere to spare someone else from a grave offense eating untithed produce. So which is it? Simply stated, what's the bottom line? Do we, do we, Commit a minor transgression to save someone else? Or do we let them worry about it on their own? Which one is it? There's two different cases and two different rulings in Talmud, in Halach, and Jewish law. And Tosfot, the great commentaries, they point out the contradiction. I want to share with you two answers of Tosfot. And then we're going to analyze them and apply them back to our story and hopefully draw a lesson. And we have about 60 seconds left. So let's, let's do this quickly. So here are the two answers that Tosfot gives. Answer number one is, it depends on the case, come on. In the case that we said, don't sin to save someone else's skin, that's because the other guy put in dough on Shabbat in an oven. 
They, they were willing to trans, they were willing to bake on Shabbat and you want to save them by putting in, by putting in the, by, by taking it out. They did it on purpose. Let them face the music or let them take it out. But it's not on you. If someone does something willfully, if someone does something inten- intentionally trying to sin, you have no mitzvah to go break the law to save them. Whereas in the other case, in the case of the tithes, the person didn't do anything wrong. They're buying produce. They're buying apples at a farmer's market stand. They're innocently buying fruit. And they don't know. They're not going to know whether it was tithed or not. So to help an innocent purchaser of produce enjoy their food and not violate a, a prohibition, so the chaver is going to preemptively give a tithe from a different part of the field, doing something not exactly correct to spare potentially somebody from erroneously, inadvertently messing up. So again, one answer is, in one case, it was intentionally sinning. So in that case, you have no obligation to, 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 to get them out of, of trouble. In the other case, it would be inadvertent. So there, you do have an obligation to help them. That's one answer. But I'll tell you the other answer. This is what we're going to focus on. The other answer is, um, the other answer is from the re, uh, from the Riva. Oh, the Riva. There you go. What is the? Not not exact. Almost you. Yeah, the Riva. Not the Riva. The Riva. The Riva explains like this. Let's. You know what? Let's. Let me share this, and then we're going to do this very quickly. Um, take a look at text number ten. Text number ten. Right over here. Rabbi Yitzchak ben Asher HaLevi, the Riva, explained that the two cases are different for the following reason. In that case of the Chavar's tithes, no offense has been committed yet. No one has violated the law yet. And it is preferable for one to commit a minor offense than to be involved in his fellow committing a more severe offense. In other words, we're preemptively averting a potential transgression. by tithing it preemptively, then nothing bad will happen. But in the case of removing the bread from the oven before it cooks on Shabbat, the forbidden act, which will automatically result in transgression, has already been done. The, uh, the dough is already put in. Based on everything the way it stands now, that will bake. So the transgression was already done. Therefore, one should not actively perform even a minor offense to prevent that from happening. So the Riva says the difference is not whether one intended or didn't intend. The question is simply, did the offense happen yet or not? When the offense already happened, like in the case of the dough, you have no mitzvah to to save that person by removing the dough. When the offense has not yet happened, like in the case of the potential buyer who might eat without tithing, right? So nothing has happened yet negatively, so you're allowed to preempt that. So let me, let's get back to our story. The Rebbe asked a few minutes ago, how could, how could we put Miriam in the same basket, so to speak, as the spies? How could we even correlate the two? How could we juxtapose the two? And the Rebbe says something beautiful. Again, it's kind of like, the Rebbe says that Miriam would gladly, would gladly take the hit in order to prevent the spies, even potentially, from sinning. In other words, Miriam consented, almost, theoretically, for her story to be put right before the spies so that, like we said, the spies would look at that story and say, you know what, we're not going to say anything negative. Now, the end of the story is they didn't, as Rashi says, they didn't heed the warning from Miriam's story. They didn't take note and stop themselves But the point here is that Miriam was willing to make herself look bad. Like the guy who's willing to tithe in, this is the chaver, to tithe in an incorrect fashion. He's willing to do that to help someone else out. And that's a mitzvah, that's a good thing. Miriam is willing to make herself look bad. Right? Miriam was willing and and, and happy to make herself look bad with the juxtaposition only so that the spies, hopefully, would pay attention and learn. It, and if you're wondering, well, how would the spies know where things are written in Torah? This is according to the angle that says that Moses wrote the Torah as it was transpiring. So imagine Moses writes the Torah, and the last thing he pens is the story of Miriam, about her speaking ill, even with good intentions, and still negative consequences happen. 
And now the spies are looking at it, and now they have a mission. So the hope is that they would learn from it. They didn't. That was their choice. They didn't. But Miriam is willing and able, sorry, not able, Miriam is willing to put her own reputation in question almost to help someone else from a more serious transgression. This is how the Rebbe looks at it. And here's the takeaway. The takeaway is that our job is to be there for the other. And whether it's physically, materially, right, to extend ourselves to help the other, even when it costs us, when I say cost, I don't only mean financially. I mean emotionally and psychologically and physically. It takes time and effort to be there for someone. The message of the Torah is take the hit, so to speak, right? Put yourself in, I'm not going to say harm's way, but, but do what it takes to help someone else. That's, that's what it means to help someone else. And the same thing is true spiritually. The Rebbe said many times that if you know an Aleph, you have an obligation to teach an Aleph to someone who doesn't. But what happens if you know not only Aleph and Bet, what happens if you know Gantz Shas, you know the whole Talmud? And you could say to yourself, what, I should go and teach Aleph Bet, teach Hebrew reading to someone who doesn't know? That's way beneath me. I should be teaching something lofty. I should be teaching something, you know, mystical. I'm teaching this. It's so simple. The answer is yes. Because our job is to be there for others, even if, even if or when it puts ourselves in a more compromised position, so to speak. There are many stories and many, many illustrations of this, which, again, we're just time constraint. We simply don't have time. Tonight, we, have, we started late because of my internet issues, and we had so much content to look at and to analyze. So my apologies for running late, but I want to wrap this up in a, hopefully, in a coherent takeaway. The takeaway, at least for me, is it's not always easy to help someone else, whether it's helping someone physically or spiritually. But it's what needs to be done. And we learn this from the story of Miriam, where again, in this way of understanding, in this conceptual way of understanding, Miriam consents to her story being put right in front of the spy story to teach us this lesson. Or to teach, hopefully, the spies the lesson. They don't work. But one is allowed and obligated to put themselves at risk, to do something that they wouldn't ordinarily do, to for, forestall or to preempt someone from making a mistake. And so my friends, you know, what, what did JFK say? Ask not what, you, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. Judaism has a similar approach. Ask not what the other can do for you, ask what you can do for the other. Let us care about each other. Care about each other deeply to the point that we are willing to put ourselves a little bit in a, dis, in, a, in a position of discomfort in order to help someone in their time of need. And together with our care and concern of the, others, of, the, of the other one who's in need, together we'll help each other. And when Hashem, when God Almighty sees His children taking care of each other, well then, what's the response of a parent? When a parent sees that the kids are are caring for each other. The parent just wants to give and give and give. And may Hashem's blessings indeed be open, open channels and open blessings for us all. And may we indeed continue to help each other and to lift each other whenever the other needs. Thank you very much for joining me tonight for Torah Studies. I hope the message resonated. I hope the process was somewhat um, followed. And uh, wishing everybody... Good, good blessings and sharing the blessings with each other. All right, with this we formally conclude, but I'm here to take questions and answers and comments, answers, questions, comments, etc. All right, feel free to jump in and unmute. Yes. Here, unmute. Chazen Ben. Okay, so I, I love the last. And, and I love the Rebbe's take on this. And, and I don't disagree. 
Uh, I really, really do not. Um, and, 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 you know, tonight's lesson was pointing in a different direction than what, um, you know, I've been waiting uh, for Orbe Shalom for, you know, uh, a while now. And so as I lean, I, I, I take time not only to memorize,